Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Ariel Sabar. His new book, Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus' wife, won the National Book Critics Award. And it tells the gripping story of sensational religious forgery and the scandal that shook Harvard. It's a great book, a real page turner, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Ariel Sabar. Ariel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Your new book is Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus' wife. This is a fascinating story, and I'm thinking when you were working on this book, are you thinking, this is the screenplay I've been dying to write? Because it is, I mean, this could be a film. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a fascinating series of twists and turns in academia and, and uh, archaeology kind of con jobs. And this is, this is the kind of stuff films are made of. Yeah, I mean, there's a very cinematic arc to the story, I think, and that's one of the things that attracted me to it is that you had... Um, so many different um, players from so many different sort of um, uh, parts of the world and from, you know, the sort of the high, high culture, low culture um, uh, mix, you know, between everything from, you know, star professors at Harvard and Princeton to, um, you know, Internet pornographers, um, Nazis, uh, East German secret police, Egyptologists. So it has this sort of... Um, very large cast of characters that, that I think um, makes it sort of a compelling story, whether it's, you know, whether it's a, it's a nonfiction narrative or, or eventually perhaps a, a film. Now this, the, the, at the heart of this is at the heart of the story is this Harvard Divinity school professor, Karen King, who's a kind of feminist sort of revisionist Christian historian thinking that there's more feminist kind of roots to Christianity than maybe meets the eye. And this guy that is the kind of con man, um, Walter Fritz, approaches her with this fragment of papyrus that's allegedly part of the lost gospel of Mary Magdalene. Now, I'm wondering, why didn't she Google this guy? <laughs> I mean, that, I think that's um, that's a good question. I mean, she she really was not particularly interested in questions of provenance. Uh, provenance is a fancy word for the history of an object. Um, you know, in, in the case of an archaeological object, like a piece of papyrus, it would mean, you know, the story of the papyrus from the moment it leaves the ground, presumably in Egypt, through its chain of owners um, up, up to the present. And I, you know, I don't think she was particularly interested in this complete stranger who emailed her one day in um, July of 2010, just out of the blue, someone she'd never heard of before, never heard from before, and said, hey, I've got this, I'm a, I'm a manuscript collector, I've got um, 15 pieces of Coptic papyri, and, and for your listeners who may not know, Coptic is an ancient Egyptian language, it also happens to be the language of Egypt's earliest Christians, 
And perhaps most importantly, it's it's a language in which many of the earliest surviving um, copies of the gospel survive. And so, you know, this gentleman wrote Karen King and said, I've got this papyrus. Um, it looks like it's it, it, it tells the story of a uh, conflict between Jesus and the disciples over someone named Mary. And um, I would you like to take a look at it? Uh, I'm, I'm interested in having it translated. And um, and so I think she, Dr. King was very interested in having a look at it, but was not particularly interested in the individual who approached her. And in fact, Dr. King made it very, very difficult for anyone else to ask questions about the individual who brought it to her, because when she wound up announcing this papyrus, which she called the Gospel of Jesus' Wife in 2012, um, I and other journalists who were on the scene, as, long, as well as uh, many of her colleagues, you know, wanted to know, who, who, who is this person that brought it to you? Understanding provenance is a key part of understanding authenticity, but Dr. King refused to say. She had promised him anonymity, and um, she wasn't um, step, stepping away from that promise. How did he find her as a mark? I mean, did he, I mean, was he just researching, okay, look, she's the kind of person that this sort of discovery will tickle her fancy kind of thing. I mean, I mean, I wonder how much research he went into to find his mark. I mean, I suspect he did a good deal of research. In, in fact, when I, you know, many years later, when I wound up identifying him in the course of um, reporting a story for the Atlantic magazine in 2016, um, you know, he, he acknowledged to me that he, um, you know, uh, she was the only scholar that he had ever approached with a papyrus. I mean, um, and that he had, um, you know, backgrounded her. He had read, he read her books. He had, he had seen her on TV. And I think he had made a very, very close study of, of Karen King and decided that she was the person he wanted to bring this sensational papyrus fragment to. There, there's no question. He, he had identified her as someone who would be uniquely receptive um, to a, a papyrus of exactly this ilk. It's interesting, too, because in my understanding of of ancient manuscript traditions, this is not a discipline that has had many breakthroughs of late, right? I mean, basically, we kind of know w- roughly when the canonical gospels were written. We sort of know these later gospels are tend to be revisionist uh, attempts at, at at reinventing the the Christian religious history. They tend to be later. I mean, you know, th- th- this is not like. Um, like you don't have to do a ton of research to find that that there's not many breakthroughs in this in this field these days. So I mean, Karen King here seems to be going really against the stream of mainstream scholarship in the issue. And I'm not saying this ideologically or anything. I'm just saying it's it it seems like she's was putting staking her claim on something that's kind of a fringy position. Well, I mean, you know, I clearly the world of biblical scholarship, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's in many ways a kind of oversubscribed field. Um, you have, you know, thousands of, of scholars studying a very small number of texts. Um, and, you know, because there's not a whole lot that, that survives. And, you know, obviously the canonical texts, the, the texts that are in the authorized um, traditions of, of Judaism, Christianity, um, uh, Islam to some extent. Um, those are well known and, and well studied. And I've been to the, the the Society of Biblical Literature conference at least three years now. This is the largest gathering of biblical scholars. Happens once a year. 
it, it attracts something like 10,000 people. So you have 10,000 people studying a very small number of texts. So when there are new discoveries, it's a really big deal. Um, and those discoveries, I don't, I don't think one should dismiss them out of hand. I think they are important because they tell us a story of um, that we don't get to see through the New Testament, that we don't get to see through the authorized texts of Christianity. And they tell us a story about what other Christians were thinking and believing in the early centuries of Christianity about the teachings uh, and the life of Jesus. And that, that that's a really interesting window. Um, and, and those discoveries are, are few and far between. I think probably the last one that most people have heard about was, was probably the Gospel of Judas, um, which the Nas- National Geographic team helped bring to light. Um, it's sort of, according to some scholars, according to the National Geographic interpretation, which was later challenged, um, but according to that initial interpretation, the Gospel of Judas portrayed a Judas who was not Jesus's betrayer, but it was in fact one of his closest confidants. So it helps it helps sort of broaden the sense of what early Christians were thinking uh, about Jesus in those first centuries of um, Christianity. And it's true, many of these non-canonical Gospels, um, or so-called Gnostic Gospels, as they're sometimes called, um, do tend to date a little bit later than, like, say, the four Gospels in the New Testament. Um, but there's still interesting windows into what what Christians were thinking in those uh, early early uh, days of Christianity. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, right? Because they tell us more about what certain early Christians were thinking about than than what than about the historical Jesus per se. Because what, what's right. interesting to me generally about these sort of texts, like the Gospel of Judas or, you know, the gospel of Jesus wife, which, which is again, this, you know, kind of fraudulent thing that appears at the center of your story is they tend to be not very Jewish, right? Like the thing about the canonical Jesus is he's in tension with what would become kind of the rabbinical tradition. I mean, in the new Testament, they're called Pharisees, but would become the kind of rabbinical tradition after the destruction of the Jewish temple. And so there's a real Jewishness about um, the early canonical witness that tends to drop out of these later pictures. Like Jesus becomes a little less Jewish. And that's why I think many scholars think, right, it's a little less historically rooted. And again, more um, probably the story reinventing itself in, in kind of Gentile philosophical soil. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, again, I'm not. You have to talk to a scholar of Gnosticism to get you know a really uh, erudite read on that. But yes, having read quite a bit about the the so-called Gnostic Gospels, you know, one of the critiques um, of of them is that they that they are kind of anti anti Jewish in some ways. Um, and, and 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 I mean, one of the big reasons is that the 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 authors of these uh, so-called Gnostic texts. Um, reject the God of Genesis. Um, the God of Genesis is a lesser God. He's a, he's a pretender um, who is basically up to no good uh, in the world. And in fact, there's, there's a greater God, um, a more supreme being who lives above that God in something called the light or the all. Um, and so there is a rejection of the God of Genesis and, and certainly a rejection of the body um, in a way that one uh, that isn't so much compatible with the um, Judaic uh, traditions, uh, both, both around sexuality and the body, and of course the supremacy of the God of Genesis. So Walter Fritz is a guy. He's the guy that winds up. I think. I think you say in the book that he he gets this eighth century papyrus and writes in it on it with contemporary ink. I mean, this is not an, a, a sort of expert forger, or at least a 
I mean, I don't know if he thought, hey, Karen, again, Karen King uh, wasn't that invested in checking the sources out. So maybe he picked his mark rate on that score. But he also was involved in this weird porn, pornographic kind of thing where he's selling videos of his wife having sex with other people. I mean, this guy is a real, he is like a character out of a film, right? I mean, th- this has got to be one of the most interesting subjects you've ever written on. No, I mean, far and away, I mean, it, just in terms of complexity and, and how fascinating the characters were, it, it's really hard to beat um, the characters you'll meet in my in my book, uh, Veritas. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Walter Fritz is a fascinating guy. And, you know, in fairness, I just you know want to say Walter Fritz denies forging the gospel of Jesus' wife. Um, other scholars have flat out, after reading, having read my book and my, and my Atlantic story, have said flat out that he's the forger. Just for the record, he does deny that. I, I want to give him his due. However, um, I think there's a very strong circumstantial case to be made that Walter Fritz either forged the gospel of Jesus' wife or knows he did, because I've, I've managed to connect him, as readers will see in Veritas, with, with, without, with other forgeries that he there's no way he can deny. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but he's this fascinating individual. So, you know, on top of uh, he, he was raised um, in southern Germany. Um, he uh, alleges to have been sexually abused um, by a priest when he was a boy. Um, in this small, deeply Catholic town. I did do some research uh, around that. He did, in fact, uh, report the abuse to the Vatican, actually only about five months before he approached Dr. King with this papyrus, which would certainly sort of give us one sense of a possible motive, uh, an individual whose life had been, who says his life had been, had been you know, damaged by, by this by sexual abuse by a Catholic priest, uh, writing up a piece of papyrus that suggests Jesus had a wife, that suggests that Jesus was sexual in some way, um, could certainly um, uh, speak to, to a kind of motivation. After uh, leaving Southern Germany, he goes to the Free University in Berlin, where he studies Coptic uh, and he studies Egyptology. So he actually is in a world in which he both has access to ancient papyrus and he's studying the very language that will wind up on the Gospel of Jesus' wife. Um, and there he has aspirations in Egyptology. He imagines a great future for himself as an Egyptologist. And um, and writes this paper that he thinks is going to sort of knock the socks off of the Egyptology chairman at the Free University. And in fact, it has exactly the opposite result. Um, the Egyptology chairman accuses Walter Fritz of plagiarizing his ideas. And after that sort of conflict, Walter Fritz vanishes from the Free University, never to be seen there again, never gets his degree, um, never talks to the people who had been in touch with it before. And then a few years later, winds up in Florida, of all places, um, and so he has this really interesting narrative. And I should mention before he winds up in Florida, he has yet another just just totally like um, incongruous job. He uh, winds up somehow as the director of the Museum of the Stasi. The Stasi are the former dreaded police in East Germany, notorious for their snooping on ordinary citizens, just really invasive kinds of spying on, on their own people. Somehow he finagles his way, somehow manages to, to get a job as the director of this museum doesn't last very long there, has another clash with his superiors over some objects, apparently, that had gone missing from the collection, and um, and then just vanishes. Shows up in Florida, first as an auto parts executive, and then um, simultaneously as a quite successful internet pornographer, uh, working in the genre of hot wife. Um, and for listeners who may not be familiar with that, um, this is a genre of, of fetish, a fetish genre uh, that... Um, that, that, that puts wives front and center. The idea is that wives have insatiable lust that can't be uh, satisfied by their own husbands, so they have to have 
relations with other men. And Walter Fritz would film his actual wife having sex with lots of other men. Um, and um, she was regarded for a time as um, one of the world's top hot life performers. There are blogs devoted to this, and she was like number five at, at her peak. Um, and the interesting thing about her, though, is that she's not all you need the- in this story, by the way, is Jerry Falwell. I mean, <laughs> if he could have crossed paths with Jerry Falwell, that in the film edition, that's what you have to put in. He and Jerry Falwell, he's, you know, making because I mean, Jerry Falwell was into this, isn't well, that 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 did occur to me when, when when I read about the latest scandal involving the Falwells is that if the if the allegations are true, then um, then Falwell himself may may have also been another uh, devotee of, of this of this fetish genre. It's quite popular, um, and um, one of the uh, one of the things that struck me though is that not so it's okay. Pornography is legal, big deal. Anyone it is it, no why, why should there be a connection, um, and why is it relevant here? And I'll tell you why. Um, first of first of all. Um, this is this fetish genre is, is devoted to the the figure of the wife um, and the sexuality of the figure of the wife. And so, if, if if the wife, if Walter Fritz is fascinated by the sexuality of wives in modernity, might he also be fascinated by the sexuality of wives in antiquity? Particularly if he had been a student of antiquity and been a graduate student of antiquity. Number two, and this perhaps is even more significant, um, Walter Fritz's wife um, is not simply was not simply the star of these hot wife. Uh, videos online. She also uh, claims to be a medium who channels the voice of God and of the angels. And she itself published a book of what she called Universal Truths, which she claims were channeled to her by the angels. And you can actually find a website. It's now defunct, but if you look at the Wayback Machine, you can find websites in which the her the, her, the sexuality of her porn um, persona is interwoven with musings on faith and musings on Jesus and Jesus's um, teachings. And so you have a, a couple for whom theology and sexuality are, are, are interweaving in all these interesting ways in their private lives. And then somehow they also bring a papyrus to a Harvard professor um, that uh, in, interweaves sexuality and theology in, in some quite um, similar ways. Now, one of the interesting things you point out in the book is that Karen King does do a little bit of due diligence, but the people that she goes to to verify the veracity, the claim of the papyrus are pretty close friends, right? She doesn't sh- shop it out to somebody she doesn't know. She, which, which again, I mean, these things look, I mean, you, you might have, I mean, it might be that you, your friend is just the best in the business or something. Right. And, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. Right. She kind of keeps it in house because it seems like she just really wants this thing to be true. Yeah, and one of the things that I uh, I was able to document in my book um, was that the the process of vetting this papyrus, the kind of due diligence one would have to do um, to really be confident that you weren't being scammed, that this wasn't a forgery, um, was Karen King did not really do that in this case. She made a show of doing it. It made a fairly convincing show on some level, in the sense that you know she went. Um, uh, at first, to a very prominent uh, papyrologist, um, <clears throat> she went. She went to a former student of hers who's at Princeton, a professor there, well regarded. Um, and so, uh, superficially, it looked like she had done her homework. Um, but when you actually drill drill down deep, you, you discover that she didn't. Um, she went to this famous papyrologist who was not an expert on Coptic Christian papyri. He was an expert on Greek documentary papyri, things like personal letters, uh, tax receipts, um, you know, the receipt for the sale of two goats to your neighbor. That's a very different kind of, of expertise. He's great at it. He's one of the best in the world. Um, 
but his expertise, and he in fact told Dr. King that it was was a Greek uh, documentary papyri, not Christian Coptic papyri. And he in fact told her before she went public, you know, given the fact that two out of the three peer reviewers who have looked at your papyrus, back up for a second here, uh, Dr. King had submitted her article on the papyrus to a journal called the Harvard Theological Review. Harvard Theological Review sent out her article to two peer reviewers before she announced her discovery. And two out of the three peer reviewers said, this is really looking like a fake and you will embarrass yourself if you publish it. So after getting that kind of feedback, one would, one would, one would think that one would take, be especially cautious about making sure that you had you know, checked with all the right experts. And the papyrologist, the Greek papyrologist she consulted said, you know, given these concerns, and no doubt these anonymous peer reviewers are, are top people in the field, you should probably consult a Coptic Christian papyrologist before going public. And Karen King does not do that nor does she do any scientific testing before she goes public. Um, so there's this, there's this real, nor does she ask any questions, really any hard questions about Walter Fritz, the man who approaches her. So there's this kind of rush to announce this thing um, in the face of so much evidence that, 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 that this was going to be embarrassing, that she was going to get it wrong. And, and that's one of the mysteries that I really want readers to entangle when they engage with, with Veritas is, is why would a scholar at Harvard, who is at the top of her game. She's a senior scholar. She uh, she occupies the Hollis Professorship of Divinity. It's one of the most prestigious posts in the study of Christianity. She has um, really nothing to gain, but everything to lose. Why does she decide to go forward in the face of, of so much contrary evidence and announce this thing on September 18th, um, 2012? And in fact, actually, we're, talk- we're speaking on the eighth anniversary of that day. She goes, she goes to a Coptic conference um, across from the Vatican, and she announces a sensational discovery that would, on some levels, upend um, the story of Christianity and the traditions of priestly celibacy and of, um, and of uh, the bar on women's ordination. Why, why rush this when there's so much evidence that she might be making a mistake? And it's a, it's a puzzle. Wouldn't it really do that? Even if, if this was, let's say this was... A, 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 like some kind of like late second century document or something, right? Like, wouldn't it really upend things? I mean, in that, in that first of all, priestly celibacy doesn't come about until the Middle Ages, right? And it's not about the the impression of the imitation of Jesus as much as it is. Well, if you got these priests who are having kids and they've got heirs, and you don't want the kid inheriting the bishopric or the church property, you know, like so. You, you, I mean, I, I wonder would it would it even if it had been a legit confine, wouldn't it still, again, as you were saying, tell us more about what certain early Christians are thinking uh, a little bit down the pike than about actually the origins of the Jesus story? Yeah, I, I think that would be up to sort of scholars and religious institutions to decide. I mean, I, I, I don't know whether it would have, I, I, it's hard to say what impact it might have on the Catholic Church if it were authentic. Um, it would certainly muddy the waters for them. And, and, and a time of, of great, I think, greater and greater political pressure um, uh, to to end the um, mandatory priestly celibacy, for instance. Um, this could have been a factor. Um, you'd have people who'd be able to point to, because the Catholic Church loves to point to um, the Church Fathers, loves to point to what was happening in early Christianity as the basis for what they do. That's, that's the only thing they claim to care about. Um, and it's part of what accounts for you know, uh, their uh, practice of the faith. And so if there were, in fact, an alternative tradition 
of a married Jesus, um, that could create some problems and it would give ammunition. It would certainly give ammunition to the opponents of, um, of priestly celibacy and uh, to the proponents of, of women's ordination in the Catholic Church. Uh, they would say, look, the, the, the canonical gospels, uh, you know, Mark, Matthew, Luke and John say nothing about whether Jesus was married or not. They say there's zero. There's nothing there. They don't say he was married. They don't say he wasn't married. And so there's kind of a silence um, about Jesus' marital status. We don't get the tradition of a celibate Jesus until the second century. So even that is a tradition. It's not there in the, in the, in the earliest Gospels. So if Karen King was able to succeed in, in making the case that there was another second century Gospel, um, that there was a second century Gospel that portrayed a married Jesus, that could create some problems. And whether the Catholic Church is, you know, is, could say, well, we don't, this, we don't care. Um, we, we have our own traditions. We don't view this as part of the authorized canon. Big deal. There are lots of people saying lots of things about Jesus in those days. It doesn't mean any of them are worth listening to. So, yes, it, they, they certainly might have dismissed it out of hand. But I think it would have given ammunition to, to their critics. But there, I mean, it's interesting because there's a host of Protestants who argue with numerous positions on the, in, in the Catholic Church from the canonical witness. Right from the canonical text, and the Catholic Church says, "Sorry, we don't care." <laughs> so, yeah. like, I wonder, like, well, what? Oh my gosh! If 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 they don't bend, when lots of theological voices try to make a case from the canonical gospels, why is the Gospel of Mary Magdalene be like, "Oh my gosh! Wow, this thing came out. Now we're, it's a house of cards. We got to fold." Yeah, no. I mean, the Catholic Church is very secure in its in its traditions, but they're not insensitive to to politics and, and history. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's possible that that they would have just dismissed it um, out of hand, even even if it were authentic, as just irrelevant. Um, and and the other thing they could have done is simply question its Karen King's interpretation. I mean, let's let's. I think it's it's really important to remind your listeners. This is a, a business card scrap of papyrus, okay? Right, right. It, It's tiny. It's missing all of its margins. We don't know what comes after it. We don't know what comes before each line, and we don't know what comes after each line. Even the lines themselves are partial. So in the, in the sort of billboarded center lines of the papyrus, you have dot, dot, dot. When I say dot, 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 I mean we don't know what it says. Dot, dot, dot. Jesus said to them, quote, my wife, dot, dot, dot. There were people in the room. I was the only journalist in the room in Rome when she announced this to her colleagues in Rome in, 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 back in 2012. Most of the because Dr. King did not provide photographs in the room, which itself raised a lot of questions because the scholars couldn't actually see the thing they were asked to opine on. But she, she, because she didn't bring photographs, she really wanted the focus of her talk to be on her interpretation of the papyrus. And so much of the pushback, even in the room among her close friends and, and colleagues, was like. I'm not sure this says what you think it says. I mean, even if this were authentic, this all, all it says is Jesus said to them, my wife, we don't know what comes after my wife. I mean, and there's, and there's this long tradition, for instance, of, of the church being the bride of Jesus or Jerusalem being the bride of Jesus. Um, Dr. King makes absolutely no mention of that tradition in her interpretation, even, even, if, even if only to dismiss it. There's not a single footnote in her draft 52-page article that says, by the way, there's a tradition of the bride of Christ and it's the church. And it's Jerusalem, um, which you know, even if you didn't agree with it, you could say it's the traditions here, but here's why it doesn't apply. So, I mean, even Dr. King, when I interviewed her back in 2012, saying, look, there's a lot missing from this papyrus. Is there any way in which one could could mount a kind of counter reading of it that says something completely different than what you what you're proposing? It says. And, you know, to her credit, she said something like, well, it could say Jesus said to them, my wife, dot, dot, dot. I don't have a wife. Um, so 
even if you take it at its face value, one could ask some very um, important questions about whether it even says us tells us what what it what Karen King proposes it tells us. In many ways, it's a kind of mad lib with blanks that scholars have to fill in for themselves, and that's what makes the forger such a genius because it's a kind of Rorschach test. It, it, it asks its reader to in, in, inject its uh, their own meanings into this very open text, and and in, and in selecting Karen King as as their mark. They knew precisely what readings uh, this scholar would bring to it. I'm curious, has she interacted with your work at all? So it depends what period you're asking about. Um, in 2012, when I was writing my first story on the discovery, it was just a discovery story um, uh, for the Smithsonian. I remember Magazine. reading that piece. Oh, actually. cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was, so it was a story in 2012 for Smithsonian Magazine. Um, we engaged a lot. I, I traveled to Harvard. I spent a day and a half with her there. Um, we had dinner together. And then I traveled to Rome and I interviewed her in Rome, inside the building, outside of the building where she made the announcement. Um, and so we had, you know, we had a, a good degree of, of exchange and, and many hours of interviews uh, then. I then returned to the story in 2015 because the question of provenance had yet to be explored. No one had, 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 had um, been able to determine who this anonymous owner was who brought Karen King the papyrus. And in 20. 15, there was still debate about authenticity. Most scholars by then um, had were convinced based on the evidence that it was a fake. There wasn't a ton of debate in 2015, but there were some. And the lone holdout was Karen King. Um, she continued to argue based on some scientific tests that she had done or she had conducted by, it would turn out, and we just alluded to this earlier, scientific tests conducted by, I would learn, Close friends uh, and 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 a family uh, of of, uh, uh, of of one of the papyrologists, a very insular circle. No disclosure to the public that these were friends and family. Uh, but she did some scientific tests, and they seemed to support her view. Um, but this question of of, of uh, who the owner was had yet to be determined. So I went and investigated that. I then approached and I then identified him. Discovered all kinds of things about his past that I was fairly certain doc, Dr. King did not know about. And I called her up in the middle of my reporting and said, I found out these things. I spent several months uh, researching this. I'd love to chat with you, tell you what I found so that I can get your reaction um, and incorporate that into the story. I said, would you, would you like to know what I found um, so that we can, you know, uh, we can ensure that we can ensure that this story is fair and, and, and has the voices of all the important players. And she said, not particularly. I think which in retrospect, a lot of people just found stunning. Like why, why wouldn't you want to know? Why wouldn't you want to know what a journalist who has spent several months investigating um, the owner um, had, had, had discovered um, before publication? It was just a puzzling. It was another example of this kind of incuriosity of like of like not wanting to be exposed to certain facts that might upset um, your reading or your position on, on the papyrus, which in retrospect, I think a lot of her colleagues just were, were baffled by. And so we, after my story in the Atlantic came out, she did call me and she did for the first time ever say, after reading your story, I now believe that the gospel of Jesus' life is a probable forgery. She was the last sort of domino um, to, to fall or, or to change her mind. Um, and we spoke for about an hour and a half. Uh, when I got the book contract to write Veritas, I, I emailed her right away and I said, I'd really like to engage you in the story. I'd really like to have your voice and your perspective in it. Um, and I was greeted for the next three years just by, by complete silence. I sent letters, certified letters, left voicemails, tons of emails. She just did not want to engage in any way um, with, with the book. And so I, that actually 
made me work twice as hard to make sure that I interviewed lots of people who knew her at various points of her life to try to find other ways to incorporate her sort of views and her um, scholarship into the book. But she's really sort of blocked blocked this out uh, from, from, from the evidence. How has that impacted her academic career to date? I mean, is it is it kind of a black mark and asterisk? Or I mean, she's still at Harvard, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, she's a tenure professor. Um, she did uh, last year the earliest age Harvard allows you to at age sixty five. She did begin a phased retirement, which means that you know she's on campus one semester, off the next, on one, off the next. Um, so she's basically on her way out. Um, you know, I think the book, which was just published last month is really where that contains a ton of investigative material about her own corner cutting and her use of scientists uh, with who, who lack proper experience and who had very, very serious undisclosed conflicts of interest. Some of them have now backed away from the fa- findings um, and her effort to exclude um, uh, art, a rebuttal from the Harvard Theological Review. She tried to strong arm um, the editors into excluding a scholar who disagreed with her. Um, there's a lot of examples of kind of scholarly corner cutting and just questions of scholarly ethics, um, that were not known before the book's publication last month. So I think there's still a question of whether, you know, I'm I'm not sure Harvard will have to decide for itself. Um, she is certainly from the scholars I've spoken to her her reputation is, is, you know, for obvious reasons, taking a hit, um, whether, you know, her already phased retirement is sped up in some form. It's hard to say. I, I sort of doubt it, but, uh, it's possible. I think. I think anything is possible. And what is uh, what is Fritz doing these days? I mean, what is what is, what is his um, what what is Walter Fritz doing with himself? I mean, is he? I think he's still he working on the forgeries. I mean, <laughs> still doing pornography. Well, it's hard to know. I, I don't think he's doing pornography anymore. In fact, as soon as questions started being asked about the Gospel of Jesus' wife, all the porn sites went dark. Um, I think he started to realize that people were, were sniffing around him, um, and he he pulled down all the porn sites right around 2014, 2015, um, when 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 people were starting to to sniff around, including myself, uh, into who the owner of the papyrus was. However, thank thank goodness the, the Wayback Machine uh, archived many of these pages, and there are other ways to to obtain uh, the, 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 his oeuvre, um, and so. Um, yeah, he stopped doing that. He got, I mean, one of the things I discovered is that he um, he applied for jobs with various government agencies in Florida. Uh, and um, I, I requested, I submitted public records requests for his applications for those jobs. And, and that's where one of the other big breakthroughs in the reporting of my book Veritas uh, came was when I requested um, his job applications to the Sarasota County, Florida schools. And, you know, he'd applied to for a bunch of different positions there, everything from like lunch aid to, you know, teacher's assistant to like, you know, an executive position. And um, and I got about 170 something pages back from the schools through public records request. And I and I just remember paging through the PDF and, and just being stopped almost dead in my tracks when I discovered that he had submitted um, an Egyptology master's degree. From diploma from the Free University in Berlin. And I'm thinking, well, wait a second, Walter Fritz washed out of that program. He never graduated. He never got a degree. He'd be the first to tell you. But here I am looking at his application to, to the Sarasota County Schools, and there's a scan diploma that purports to be from the Free University uh, in ancient studies and in Egyptology. I'm going, well, what is this? Um, and and it's dated 1993. It, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's just a blatant forgery. I mean, Walter Fritz would be the first to tell you that he didn't graduate and he has no diploma. 
And so I'm thinking, here's a guy who, you know, he may swear up and down that he didn't forge the gospel of Jesus's wife, but boy, um, he either is a forger or he works closely with forgers and he's willing to risk uh, criminal penalties to submit a forgery to a government agency um, with the intent to defraud. Um, so that I think that told me a whole lot about about Walter. I mean, he was very clearly someone who whose past suggested that he had a problematic relationship with the truth. But to find a, a sort of a, a, a straight up forgery he submitted with a job application. And of course, in the field of Egyptology, the field he had always wanted to make it in. They never did. Um, I thought was very, very revealing. He, did, he then did obtain another job with the state of Florida, which I think he was fired from um, a couple of years ago. And I'm actually not exactly sure what he's up to now, although I do know that he and his wife have, have divorced. You, King writes that if, if history isn't about truth, but about power relations, and that historians should abandon the association between truth and chronology. So, I mean, there, I mean, she seems to be saying, like, look, who cares about the, the sort of veracity of this claim? I know it's true. I just know that this tradition is true, that there's this kind of feminist deconstructionist core at the heart of Christianity, whether or not this papyrus is right or not. I mean, this seems like, this seems like in, in the kind of post-truth era, right, we have populist post-truth stuff on the right. This seems like a form of populist post-truth manifestation on the left. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that it's, you know, this grows out of the tradition of postmodernism, which which really got traction in the 80s, right, as uh, Dr. King was finishing graduate graduate school. She was a wholehearted um, opponent of these theories that postmodernism doesn't accept the idea of an objective truth. All truths are um, positional, that all of us essentially have our own truths um, and that um we can't ever um, describe anything out there in the world. All we have is language. Language creates the world. Um, and that uh, truth is created by whoever uh, is yelling the loudest, whoever, whoever has the power to tell and sell the best story. And so in many ways, she, not only was she, she a believer that in, in, the way, in that sort of explanation of, or that approach to truth, but she was a, she was a deployer of it, a t- tactical deployer of postmodernism in the sense of um, using her post at Harvard to grab the, basically the, the largest scholarly megaphone in the world and proclaim a certain version of the truth that she hoped through um, just the, the volume at which it was being proclaimed and the um, media through which it was being distributed, including the New York Times, uh, the Washington, uh, sorry, the New York Times, which put it on its front page, the Boston Globe, which put the discovery on the front page, and, you know, mea culpa, Smithsonian Magazine, um, wh- which I wrote for, which, which, which gave it prominent play. Um, and so I think she was very keen to use the, these, these, these megaphones to, to introduce the world to um, a, something that was, as one critic put it, fake but accurate. Um, it, it was not a genuinely authentic text, text from the ancient world, but it contained certain ideas that Karen believed either were true or felt true or should be true. And in fact, she, um, she discloses in one of her theoretical books that the basis of, of evaluating a truth should not be whether it it's it sort of exists in the world or not, whether it's sort of objectively true, but whether something is a moral good. That it, a truth should be evaluated on on, a, on its on its on an ethical basis, not on a, an empirical one. And that raises all kinds of questions. Um, and because it, uh, about well, you know, what does that portend for our understanding of um, reality at a time when 
uh, much of our political system is consumed with so-called alternative facts. I mean, are we going to simply surrender ourselves to a world in which we have no common ground? There's nothing we agree on. I have my truth. You have yours. Um, you know, and if I if I can get onto a bigger uh, if I grab a bigger mega horn, uh, you know, um, megaphone than you do, then my truth wins out. I think that's a dangerous place to be in scholarship, and I think it's a dangerous place to be in a democracy. Yeah, and it's interesting that that now I think you have, you know, postmodernism kind of got its start on the academic left, right? Where again, where things are are you know, I have my truth, you have your truth, and and, and things are rooted largely in perspective. But now in the age of Trump, it seems like liberals have now become champions of old-fashioned objectivity right because now the kind of relativism has been mastered by the right in the age of trump right where it's again you have the kelly and conway alternative facts and liberals are kind of like struggling to put the toothpaste back in the tube but it seems like it's already out now yeah i mean i i I deliberately try to stay out of politics but i I would i would want to say that yes absolutely i think this is nonpartisan. i think the the idea that um that one can have a tribal idea of what truth is and what is true to that trot to one's tribe um, is, is not left or right. It, it, it can be used by and um, uh, by both sides and um, by all sides and, and um, all sides can become victims of it depending on who's um, who's wielding it. And I think that I don't, I, I have, I sense that really no one benefits in, in the end. I think there's a lot of, I mean, my disposition as a journalist, of course, is that, uh, I, I believe that there are facts out there in the world that one can do interviews, one can look at documents, one can go out and see things with one's own eyes um, and report them and present um, one's best version of, of an empirical truth to, to readers. Are we are we going to get it right all the time? Of course not. We're going to make mistakes. But um, when when one makes a mistake, when good journalists make mistakes, they correct them. They, they move quickly to correct the record um, and, and and get things right. And that's not something we've seen from Karen King or the Harvard Divinity School in, the, in this case. I mean, she she really hasn't engaged um, with some of the hardest questions that her work that, that, that this saga raises. And I think part of it is a sense of, well, OK, there's there's a version of the story now that suggests it's a fake. Um, and that seems to have won out. So there's no point in sort of arguing against it or engaging with the journalists who are asking questions about it, because that would suggest that there's a kind of common ground that's worth fighting over. And I don't think she views she views it that way. I think she views it as, um, for the moment, one side has an upper hand, but we'll see, you know, maybe one day, um, someone else will grab, um, a louder bullhorn and be able to, to, to sort of shout down that version of, of, of the uh, shout, shout down that narrative. And, and, you know, this is, this is my, my opinion. Um, and I just wonder whether, where that leaves scholarship, which is supposed to be, which is supposed to care about, things like truth, which is supposed to care about veritas, which is, of course, the title of the book and, and also happens to be the Latin word for truth and the motto of Harvard University. Well, your book clearly demonstrates your commitment to the truth. It's well-researched and it's a brilliantly told tale. I mean, it, this is a great book. I'd encourage anybody to read it. It's it's not just timely but it's and, and, and relevant, but it's a page turner. So thanks for writing it and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. 
or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>